Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Don't think you're hot, because we're not in the Dominican Republic. That is hot. We sat through church there and things, and we got it pretty easy with a little breeze in a, in a school gym. So um, singing that song, we're going to, my family, we're going to go to the Grand Canyon this week. I may have been to the Grand Canyon. You sing the song Majesty, and I've never been there. I, I think I was actually like two when we went, but I don't remember it. But uh, I think we might sing that song, Majesty, when we stand in front of the Grand Canyon and just see how big and how vast and how amazing God is. And on the way, we're probably going to see the world's largest ball of yarn and pick up Aunt Edna in Grand Junction along the way. Three of you followed me on that joke there, so you've, you, you maybe you need to get out more, right, Brian? Uh, so this morning, we're going to continue in this series Q&A, and Brian's going to help me out this morning. So we've uh, put together something that we feel like God is really going to speak to us and through us. We really do. We've prayed hard about this and, and sought the Lord on what he wanted to, to talk about in this big question that we're talking about today. In this series, we've been going through Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament book. It's one of the poetry books, so it's, uh, it's interesting. It's laid out kind of like poetry, the uh, Hebrew way of poetry. It goes with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Those are considered the poetic books of the Old Testament. And Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, was an interesting guy. He was the king of Israel, the son of the warrior king David, the man that was after God's own heart. And then he has Solomon, and Solomon sees Israel rise to this amazing reign, that they had everything. So Solomon had more money, uh, power, fame, fortune. He had what everybody would say, that's the good life. That's the life you, you would really want if you have the, quote, good life. And... Uh, we're going to talk through Ecclesiastes 4 today a little bit, and we're going to answer the question, who's really better off? Because Solomon, in chapter 4, asks four different questions about four different scenarios, situations, um, who's really better off? It, and it's a matter of perspective. You know, a homeless person may look at somebody that has a really nice house and say, they're better off. A single person may uh, look at a married couple and say, they're better off. A married couple may look at a single person and say, you're better off. I mean, that's a matter of perspective, right, sometimes. And so that's what we're really going to try to answer this morning. But I want you to remember this. When you read Ecclesiastes, it is not a theology book. It is a, it's a philosophical book. It's a book of questions, questions. And he doesn't always give resolve. He doesn't always give closure. He doesn't always give answers in this book. But he does give his perspective. And we believe and know here at Novation that all scripture is inspired by God and is there for a reason. So Ecclesiastes, he asks life's big questions. And what we've been trying to do is say, okay, with the whole scope of the New Testament and Jesus and the whole scope of the Bible, what is the answer to these big questions? God does ha have answers. And so this morning, that's what we want to talk about. So Brian and I are going to kind of dialogue a little bit about what what would it be like if Jesus and Solomon had a cup of coffee? They met at Starbucks. And Solomon had his, his questions to Jesus. And, you know, Jesus would have his robe and sandals on, right? 
and, and Solomon would have his crown, maybe? No, I'm kidding. But what would it be like if they had a cup of coffee together? What would it be like, and how would Jesus respond to him and give his perspective? Because Jesus' perspective trumps all other perspectives, so. Okay, so if you're like me, have you ever wondered what it would be like to, to have everything, right? It's kind of an American dream. One of the coolest things about this Q&A series is that we've been looking deeper into the mind of Solomon, who was uh, historically perhaps had more than anybody who ever lived. So it's a really cool insight if you've ever wondered that, so we'll be able to get in, into the mind of Solomon and, and dig deeper. And we're gonna try to contemplate together this morning, why does Solomon have these perspectives that we're gonna talk about? And what are the proper perspectives to have in light of what Solomon's going through mentally and emotionally? So we're gonna kick off in uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1, and I'd like you to read along with me here. It says, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they had no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who had never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So what Solomon's really asking here is, are those who suffer better off than uh, no longer living? That's your first fill in there. Are those who suffer better off no longer living? What type of, of suffering is Solomon speaking of there? Well, he's talking about oppression. And as Americans, I think it's fair to say we probably don't fully understand the meaning of oppression uh, in the same way that, that maybe somebody in South Sudan, right, where they're per persecuted by guys like Joseph Kony or the underground church in China. Uh, those are people who understand maybe the depth of the word oppression. But even then, still in the US here in America, we still experience suffering on many levels. Uh, certainly illnesses, uh, loss of loved ones, loneliness, debt, you can fill in the blanks. I mean, there's certainly still suffering that occurs here in America. And we compare these experiences to the kind of suffering that, that exists in these other places, they, they're very different, right, admittedly. You look at oppression in other parts of the world versus our suffering here in America. But suffering and watching people suffer is real. And unfortunately, suffering's a stumbling block for the faith of many Christians, right? Suffering is kind of that catalyst that makes people challenge their faith. God, are you real? Is Jesus, I mean, is he really alive and thriving? And how can we see all this suffering going on? For instance, can you recall a time when you said this? I wish I'd never been born. Maybe through a time of suffering or you said, I'd be better off dead right now. You know, they seem kind of extreme, but when you're going through extreme trials, they're natural emotions. So what if, for instance, you, someone committed a grave sin? Could that produce sorrow that you think would make them feel like they'd never been, uh, better off never been born? To know that guilt and that condemnation that comes with sin and the enemy comes to lie to us and condemn us of our sins and we're before God, the perfect one, and saying, ah, I'd better off be better off dead than to have to face this sin in the face. You know, it certainly have to fathom the thought of I mean, God forbid, a molested or, or abused child, and to look at that child and think, God, it would, it would almost be better off for that child not to have been born than to have to suffer through that kind of adversity. And thank God we have a restorative God who can overcome any trial or circumstance. Ultimately, Solomon's perspective here is, is that the oppressed have no comforter, and they're better off dead. 
that's the sort of the conclusion Solomon draws is, is that the oppressed have no comfort or they're better off dead. But let's take a look at Jesus's response to Solomon's perspective here. I think Jesus would tell Solomon over a cup of coffee, he would say, listen, I'm the true comforter. I think, write that down. I'm the true comforter. Somebody that doesn't have a perspective with Jesus in the equation sees the oppression, sees the suffering and goes, what's the point? How is this, you know, God's will? How is this, you know, anything? But when you have the words of Jesus and you have the understanding of who he is, you have a comforter. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, he said, in this life, you're gonna have trials and sorrows and pain of many kind. And everybody in this room has experienced trials and pain of many kind. I've experienced it, so have you. Jesus didn't promise that we wouldn't have these this side of heaven. He actually said we would. And here's what Jesus said about himself in Luke 4, 18 and 19. And he's quoting and, and saying that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, a prophecy about him as the Messiah. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to re release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to release the oppressed. Now, first and foremost, it's important that when we see Jesus as our comforter, no matter what happens in life, that, that we remember that this is first and foremost spiritually and eternally. Because he said in this life, this, this, this world is a fallen world, and he came and, and was part of this world with us to show us what life was really supposed to be like, what God was like, and how he was the way to God and to eternity. So when you think of Jesus being the comforter, always remember that in this life we're gonna have struggles, but we, he's gonna walk with us through those struggles and ultimately in heaven we're not gonna have these, these struggles. When you think of the cross, Jesus wants us to remember, first of all, he came to bring justification to the sinner, meaning his perfect life in criminal death that he didn't deserve, but he sacrificed himself, brings justification to each one of us. And that word means that we're made right with God by our faith in what Jesus did for us. Us by ourselves, we're in big trouble. How many have figured that out, that you can't be right with God? But Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died and paid the penalty so that we could be right with God. But it's also a perspective of it's ultimately Jesus on the cross is gonna be the ultimate justification of the nations, the oppressed, the poor, how th it, things are all out of whack and chaotic and what, from our perspective. Jesus sees the ultimate restoration of all things in the end. But how does he comfort us now? If Jesus, today, you're in pain, you're struggling, you're in, a, you're in a, a, a troubled time of your life, how does he comfort you? Well, first and foremost, if you're a follower of Jesus, he comforts through the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit. That's one of the names of, of the Holy Spirit is he's the comforter. He comes alongside us. Jesus promised that he would give us his peace and his joy through the Holy Spirit, that we could have that even in the hard times, all of his promises. But here's something I want you to get this morning. That's sometimes is this out there concept. Well, the, 
the presence of God for some people. I've experienced the presence of God, and you have too. Sometimes we need to pray continually that we are aware of the presence of God in our life. You know another way that God comforts us? It's through one another. It's through people. It's an amazing thing. He is, he is, wants, is invited us to help one another be comforted in our struggles. I've seen that, man. There has been, this past couple weeks has just been crazy news that I have gotten about pain in people's life. Mind-boggling stuff that you shake your head and just go, you gotta be kidding me. But I also see the body of Christ. I also see people coming alongside one another and, and caring for one another and ministering to each other. It's a beautiful thing. So God wants Jesus as the comforter, wants you and I as his followers to be his hands and feet, to connect with the poor, to connect with the broken, get ourselves educated on what's going on. When I went down to the Dominican Republic in January with the team, I saw poverty that blew my mind. I had never seen poverty like that. And it made me aware that 93% of the world actually lives like that and that I got it pretty good. It made me think of Allison uh, Chirume, and do you remember Allison and Valentine Chirume? They're missionaries to, to Zimbabwe now. He's from Africa. She's from here, the suburbs of Denver. When she was a 17-year-old girl uh, back in the day, I remember her coming and telling me when I was her youth pastor, I feel like God's called me to go over to Africa, and I just want to make a difference. I want to make an impact. She was naive enough to know that she could go over and have an impact, and she came back and told us stories about starting a baby safe house and working with this baby safe house where people would just get rid of their kids because they didn't want them anymore. They were too much of a burden. She actually rescued a little boy named Moses that they named Moses. He was in a trash bag next to a, a, ba a trash that was on fire when they rescued and they named him Moses. And Moses is growing up now and Moses is about 10 years old. <laughs> and, and so God has invited us both to experience his comfort tangibly through the Holy Spirit and to be his comforter. So I believe Jesus would tell Solomon, I comfort, and I also ask you, would you help me comfort? I invite you to do that. All right, well certainly suffering and oppression are very heavy subjects, but let's take a look at three other perspectives that Solomon writes about in Ecclesiastes 4. We're gonna pick up in uh, verse, uh, is this, yeah, verse 18 to 19 here. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, verse four to six. It says, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Solomon is asking us here in this passage, are those who have success and wealth better off without? Are those who have success and wealth better off without them? What do you think a guy like Mark Cuban would say? Do you know who Mark Cuban is? He's uh, this self-made billionaire tech guru that is also the owner of the Dallas Mavericks basketball team, and he's also on Shark Tank, that show on, uh, I don't know, whatever, CNBC or whatever it is, and so he's one of the sharks. I think he'd probably say, you're crazy, right? You ask Mark Cuban if he'd be better off without his successes and his wealth. What about if you ask that question to Donald Trump? What do you think? he would say. You're fired. Yeah, yeah, you're fired, right? <laughs> Donald Trump, I mean, these are guys that, that re relatively have far more than most of us. And, you know, the reality is here in America, we see fame and fortune as false idols. 
it sets a, a bar for us, and, and sort of figuratively speaking, the standard is the Joneses, right? Keeping up with the Joneses, or in my case, the Johnsons. Our neighbors are the Johnsons. They have a really <laughs> nice house. Um, but it's always what's next, right? Um, the next uh, pair of shoes, the next relationship, the next position in my job, the, the next high, right? What can I achieve or obtain that would give me a higher level of sense of self-worth than I currently have? Here's a question for you. When's the time you remember saying, Lord, if you would just give me blank, if you would just answer this prayer, or if I could only have this, I know we would make it through. I mean, I think back the last six months, I probably said it a handful of times, whether internally or I prayed it to the Lord. Lord, please just let this happen. Please just provide and meet this need. Here's a couple more questions for you. If you're not content in your current job, isn't the temptation to quit without knowing the Lord's will and expecting that new job to make you happy? I mean, I've certainly been through that. Um, if you're not content with your current income, isn't the temptation to sacrifice integrity and morality for the next dollar? Because we think that a little bit more money will help meet the concerns of life. Your metaphor would be, I guess a, a sort of a phrase would be, when we see it, we wanna be it, right? We, the, the eyes are sort of a pathway to the soul. When you see that other person or that other family or that very successful person living the quote unquote good life, it's natural for us to, to have an increased level of want. You know, one time a few years ago, Jill and I uh, were in Cosmo, Mexico on vacation, and it was probably, I was like four or five days into the trip, we were sitting at the breakfast table in this restaurant. And I don't know how you are, I mean, but when I'm on vacation, usually the first few days I'm unwinding and having a great time, but about day four or five, for some reason, my mind starts going 100 miles an hour, and I'm thinking about everything that's going on back at home, what's going on in the businesses, how's the church doing, and you know, future and all this kind of stuff, and it can tend to cause a little bit of anxiety and, I don't know, relative stress. And I remember looking over to the window, and I saw a couple sitting there, and they were just beaming with joy, right? And, and I looked at them, and I saw, what, in their simple expressions, what was it that caused them such great contentment? And, uh, you know, from that day, I kind of, I just think about that couple when I get a little bit dry, I guess, and, and just think about, you, you can choose contentment. You can choose despite what you have or don't have. You can choose to be joyful. And, um, you know, some of you might be sitting here saying, well, sure, I'd love a trip to Cozumel for a week. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't complain, Bradley, you wouldn't complain one bit, I'm sure. But the reality is, even for me, my contentment dried up for a season. It was just, you know, spiritually and emotionally dry. Solomon's perspective in all this is that those who have the good life appear discontent. That's what Solomon was perceiving as he was writing this in Ecclesiastes. He sees these people with a quote unquote good life and he resolves himself that they all seem discontent. Let's check out what Jesus would respond to that with. How many famous athletes, rock stars, rich people are miserable, you know? And Jesus, I believe, would, would if he could get a hold of Solomon at that point in his life, he would say, listen, I'm all you need to find real contentment. That's Jesus' word to you guys this morning. I'm all you need to find real contentment. You can write that down. Jesus has promised that he would be our true joy. You're looking for joy? He said he gives the everlasting true joy. Jesus promised to, to give us peace, peace not as the world gives, but peace that only he can give. 
He said, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. So we're looking for joy, we're looking for peace, we're looking for rest. Jesus said he's that. That's an audacious claim for him to make. But he keeps his promises. He is who he said he is. But he takes it a little further in uh, Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells a parable about a rich man, a guy who, who had it all, right? And he says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a cr good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Jesus is telling this story. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many of years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus basically saying, man, th this guy thinks he's got it made because his storehouses are filled. His 401k is set. He's got a nice house. He's got this. He's got that. I'm set. I'm just going to chill and take life easy. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Being rich towards God. He said, you're a fool if you store up earthly wealth but don't have a rich relationship with God. That's where contentment comes from, being rich towards God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? It means that you have, a, are, have entered into a relationship with him through Jesus. You've turned away from sin and selfishness and said, I want you, God. I, I want your eternal promises, not just the good life here. And God, everything that I have is a gift from you to be steward. And, and it's a gift from you to, to share and to be generous. It's an attitude of the heart to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and, and love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul described contentment in, in knowing Jesus when he said that he'd learned the secret to be content when he, had, when he had, was in plenty, when he was in want. He said the secret was I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the secret to contentment. That's the context of that verse. We quote that a lot. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The, the core of that is contentment and being content in, your, in wherever you're at in life. Don't hear me wrong. It is not wrong to have stuff. Jesus does not want stuff to have us. There's a big, big difference there. That it's okay to, to pursue and enjoy life. Don't let it control you. Don't let it become your functioning God. Don't let it become your, your idol. Remember the rich young ruler? The story of him, he came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And talk, Jesus said the commandments, love God, love your neighbor. And he said, I've done all that. And he, he wanted to go a little further and justify himself. Is there anything else I lack? Jesus looks into his heart and he says, go sell all you have and, and give it to the poor and come and follow me. He says the guy walked away sad because he, he was very wealthy. Well, Jesus isn't saying that to every single person. Sell all you have and, follow, and, and, and you know, give it to the poor and follow me. He's saying, what is it that's holding you back from being rich toward God? What is holding you back from, from connecting deeper with God and seeing your life from God's perspective? The good question to ask yourself, and I believe Jesus was asking the rich young ruler, is if it was taken away from you, whatever it is in your life, what do you have left? Do you still have contentment? If it was taken away from you like that, 
what, what would you have left? Um, when Jesus is enough, that's when you get his perspective. When Jesus is enough, then everything else is icing on the cake. All right, third point here. We're gonna pick up scripture in uh, Ecclesiastes 4, verse seven. So we'll read seven through 12. Solomon writes, again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. In your third point here, Solomon's really asking, are the lonely better off alone? Are the lonely better off alone? Listen, I know a lot of us can relate to a time when you felt really lonely, uh, when you felt friendless, when you felt sort of in despair being single, wanting a spouse. Can anybody relate to that? Many years of my life, certainly. But here's a little twist. What about the times you said, I'd be better off without you, right? Through anger, through self-centeredness. If, you, if you've been or you think you are in a bad relationship, you might be thinking you'd be better off without your spouse at times. If you've been hurt by the church or someone in the church, you might be thinking following God would be easier by myself. If you're like me, you're an independent type A personality, you might be thinking you'd rather do things on your own and get them done right so that nobody else would get in the way. It's a fact, it's true, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I pray every day for some grace there. Can you say control freaks? Control freaks. <laughs> Jill, I'm not a control freak. Um, you are? Yeah. Self-pointed. Uh, when you get to, here's the thing though, when you get to the other end, however, perspectives change and the story becomes you don't know what you got till it's gone, right? Remember that song? Didn't like eight people sing that song? Don't it always seem to go? You don't know what you got till it's gone. Do you know the song? Cinderella okay. sang that. Cinderella? 80s metal band, so. Yeah, like Amy Grant and somebody else, Carly Simon maybe, okay. anyway. Here's the thing though, um, did you know I knew Carly Simon? Yeah, I do. I have a story though, personally, and, and thinking back when I, when I was younger, I was kind of a, a, a acquaintance to many people, and I was sort of a puzzle piece to many different groups in music, in sports, in academics, but I never, I guess I never was really the centerpiece of that. And while some people would say, you know, that there was a level of belonging. You look, you, as an outsider, you look to this group of people and you, and you can see who's in this group, right? This clique or this popularity uh, group of people and you can see who's in that group and you say, well, obviously they belong. But I actually think it's, it's possible to be lonely even in a crowd. You know, all those years growing up and I realized how God made me now, it's, it's to, to benefit others in the church and so on and so forth, but it's possible to be lonely in a crowd. And even though I was a part of different groups, I, I always wanted to be that centerpiece. And I think a lot of us can relate going through school and uh, wanting to, to look a certain way or wanting to have the approval and the appeal of, all, of our peers. And you know, things aren't always what they seem to be. I wasn't fully accepted by all, just adequately accepted by most. Uh, 
And that was a burden that I, I struggled with. And so, tying this together, Solomon's perspective in all this is, is that life is hard without companions. That's what he's saying. He's saying life is hard without companions. Scott, speaking about feeling lonely in a crowd, is this something you can relate to? Yeah, when you said that, it made me think of uh, when I was younger, in my early 20s, a group of us, about 20 to 30 people, would drive out to Lake McConaughey every Memorial Day and Fourth of July weekend. This coming weekend would, would have been one of those weekends. And we would go out, and it was one long, fun, you know, time of just hanging out. But I remember being there and still having this sense of emptiness and loneliness being around people. And it wasn't until I became a follower of Jesus that I realized what was missing in my heart in the middle of being around with, with many friends around me, there was no real depth to it. There was no common goal. People actually outside of a, it, it's easy to use one another for something. It's use one another for companionship or you know, to have fun or to travel with or to do whatever it is. But as I was thinking about this, I think Jesus' response to Solomon would be, I agree with you. I agree with you. You go back to Genesis, and God, after he created Adam, he's, when he created Eve, he said, it's not good for man to be alone. That's not just a marriage scripture. It's not good for us to be alone. We were created for community. So I think Jesus would respond like this. He would say, Solomon, I'm your creator, and I created you and redeemed you for community. I think that's what he would tell him. That he created each one of us and he redeemed us for community. So every person is created with that, that need and that sense for community. Jesus told his, his disciples, first and foremost, about himself. He said, I no longer call you servants because a master doesn't confide in his servants. Now you are my friends since I have told you everything the Father has told me. So I think there's this part to Jesus' response that is, yes, I am enough, as I said earlier. He, Jesus calls you and I friend. Think about that. We're a friend of God. God calls us friends. And it's through the, the person of the Holy Spirit we have the presence of Jesus all the time with us. But Jesus also said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. So when we gather like this, the presence of God is with us. So we do need to be around one another. We do need to be around other brothers and sisters in the Lord and to experience community. Church was never designed by God to be a lonely place. And I would give my heartfelt pastoral apology to anyone in this room that's ever felt lonely at church. I would also ask you, though, to check your own life and to say, have you stepped out to try to find out you know, what people are about and friends and all that? It's a two-way street here. And sometimes in a church the size of Novation, it's easy to think, well, everybody knows everybody. Guess what? We don't. We're, we're, we're just getting started at getting to know each other. But you gotta take a next step yourself. So there are plenty of opportunities for you to get involved in community. Jesus said this about his disciples. He said, he was praying to the Father, and he said, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. Jesus is saying that the world will know he's real when we have love and unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. That doesn't mean we're going to get along perfect. doesn't mean all relationships are going to be perfect, but that we strive for, for love and unity. 
And so we have to, to remember. Have you ever heard this before? There's a, there's a God-shaped hole in everyone's heart. I believe that, that there is a God. God created us, that he meets our deepest need. But he also created us with a people-shaped hole. He did. We need friends. We need one another. We do need companions. Solomon is right. Life is hard when you're all alone or when you're, when you're lonely. And so um, it, the, the unique part of that is life's deepest hurts often come through people. How many have figured that out? But how many know this to be true? Life's healing often always comes through people as well. So you're hurt by people, and yet God heals us with people. Today, if you've been hurt by people, you've been hurt by our relationship, you've been hurt by, you know, people who said things in the name of the church or in the name of Christ. Listen, that's why we're told over and over, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. And, and to, to give that opportunity for healing to come through. You know, what's really cool about that is uh, talking about God-shaped heart. I, I didn't know the Lord until I was 23 years old and thinking about all those years when I had acquaintances but I was missing God. After that, that time in my life when I accepted Jesus, then all of a sudden my identity and my fulfillment were, were in proper perspective. So uh, I think there's a lot of truth to that. All right, our final point here, we're gonna pick up in uh, Ecclesiastes verse 13. Solomon writes, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from a prison to the kingship or he may have been in poverty within his kingdom. I saw all that, uh, that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with their successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So finally here, Solomon's pondering this question. Are we better off at the bottom of society's success ladder? Interesting thing to ponder. Are we really better off at the bottom of society's, uh, society's success ladder? Does anyone really gain fulfillment from being on the low rung of the corporate totem pole or corporate ladder, so to speak? Uh, maybe anybody other than that guy Milton from Office Space. Do you ever watch that movie? <laughs> the guy with the stapler, you know? He, he, maybe there are some people who actually know that they're, they're happy just being kind of on that low rung. But again, the American way, society, culture would say, climb the corporate ladder, achieve success, grow, prosper, and all of that. Does anyone really find it easy to make an impact in society with minimal significance and power? To feel like you can go out into the community and actually make an impact without any kind of uh, a badge on your chest or any kind of notoriety, right? We, it makes us feel a little insignificant there. So I've got a ladder here. This is a ladder from my house. It's really messy, much like certain parts of my life. <laughs> I think it's a metaphor that way. The interesting thing about this ladder as it pertains to society's ladder is as we start to climb the ladder, right, we get up a little bit higher, all of a sudden, we get a little bit more credibility from our peers, right? People start kind of coming out of the woodwork and we kind of have the position and identity. As we keep climbing the ladder, all of a sudden, we can be seen by more people and sometimes people we don't even know start approaching us, right? Fame, position, notoriety. But as you climb even higher, what happens? I don't even know if I'm gonna do this, but Scott, will you catch me if I fall? I'll try. You get up to the top here and what happens? 
You want to hold my hand? Yes, I do want to hold your hand. As you get to the top of the ladder, what happens? Things become more unstable, right? There's less people leading you. You're doing more leading. You're called into a position of influence and power. It's easy for arrogance and pride and self-centeredness to set in. So being at the top of the ladder breeds instability. But on the, thank you. I just want to hold your hand. There we go. But on the other hand, at the, at the bottom end of the ladder, there's less pressure, there's less reliance upon you, and there's less risk of failure. Would you agree? A lot less risk of failure being down here on the bottom rung than there is here at the top with all the power and, and the success. Solomon's perspective here in, in verses uh, 13 through 16, he's really saying the top of the ladder seems unstable. And this is coming from a guy who is at the highest of high of the ladder in his time. I mean, he was the king of the greatest kingdom at that time. Scott, would you share on the final point how Jesus would respond to being at the top of the ladder? Are you ready to hold my hand? Yeah, I'll hold it. So I think Jesus would say this. I'm not getting on the top. I think this might be as far as I go. Um, he's, you're, you're younger and more flexible. Um, Jesus would model this, and he did model this for us. That the way of the kingdom of God, the way of Jesus, is the way down. Jesus is the top of the ladder. Everything exists by him and for him, the scriptures teach. And yet he came from up here to come be one of us, to humble himself. He said that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life ransom for you and you and every one of us in this room. He came to give his life for us. The king made his way down and said, I'm gonna become one of you and I'm gonna model what true humility looks like. You see the this instability of the top of the ladder? I'm gonna show you what it looks like when you let me shoulder your life. So I think Jesus would say this. He would say, I'm your king. Follow me, put into practice what I've shown you and taught you and you'll have stability. He's the king. The king modeled humility. He modeled servanthood. And he showed us what the, the kind of stability, the kind of stable life, the kind of balance that we can have when he's in control, when we're following him. He actually said to his disciples, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can get on top of that, the ladder at your job, in life, in this world, but apart from him, you can do nothing. So if he puts you in a place of leadership or authority, lead, but lead well as the way down in a place of humility and never looking down upon people. Um, he said this, Jesus told his disciples on the night before he was betrayed, he said, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What was the example? He washed the disciples' feet. Here, here the king, the Messiah, is there. And he said, I want to show you what the kingdom of God is like. I want to show you what it's like to have the king be your example and, and wash your feet. I was, I was thinking about this. I know a lot of pastors. And I know a lot of really lonely pastors. And it can be lonely pastoring. And you think, well, how can it be lonely? You're, you're with people all day long. Well, it can tend to be people's perspective, if you will. People, people say that they know pastors are not perfect, right? But secretly, 
you think they're supposed to be. Not you, but in general, people think pastors are supposed to be perfect. When pastors fail, what do you say? I thought he was a pastor. I thought, I mean, I, I've had people say, you're a pastor? Yeah, I'm sorry, you know, but my bad. It, it, it can be a lonely spot to put a, a pastor or any human in this unstable position. That's why we follow Jesus and we don't follow people. Don't get me wrong. Um, pastors have a great responsibility. And I have a responsibility before the Lord that I take very, very, very seriously. I'm gonna give an account of this before the Lord and how I do the calling that he, he, he gave me. But don't, please don't ever make this false statement and say pastors are called to a higher standard. No, they're not. We're all called to the standard of Jesus to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's every believer. Now, I do have a greater responsibility. Anybody that's pastoring and shepherding, so please pray <laughs> consistently. I mean, we need wisdom and, and, and your grace. But sometimes, and I use that example since we're in church, sometimes we, we elevate people to a, a higher level than in our minds and we, we don't give them the same grace and understanding that we do, would some, somebody else. So it's important that we, that we understand that. And Jesus said this. He said, but many of you who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Sometimes we think Billy Graham or a pastor or a missionary, they're the greatest in the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus would say. Jesus, it, Jesus looks for faithfulness in whatever he's called you to do and created you to do. Did you pursue it and do it with your, your whole heart as unto him? You may never get any recognition this side of heaven, but I can promise you heaven is recording every act of faithfulness, every prayer, every act of love, everything that was inconvenient for you or uncomfortable that you stepped out to do for God, he's writing it down and you will be rewarded for it. The last will be first. The way of the kingdom is always down and that's that attitude of the heart and that we lead and do life through humility. So, reflecting on Solomon's life, we've been four chapters deep in Ecclesiastes. And if you look back in the Old Testament and you watch Solomon's life, what you really see is, you see a teeter-totter, right? You see a seesaw. What I mean by that is, Solomon inspired some of the greatest writings in the Old Testament. Times when it was very God-centered, when there was wisdom, when there was appreciation and gratitude, we, we read some of, the, of Solomon's greatest writings. But other times in the Old Testament we read where Solomon was very self-centered, where there was lamenting and regret and remorse occurring. And ultimately, we, we want to, I guess I would challenge us all with this. Would you make a commitment along with Scott and I this week that we'll let Jesus take control of our lives? So to create balance, to create stability and equilibrium, so that in one hand, we can receive the good things in life, the material things that God wants to put into our lives for us to enjoy, to give us peace and wisdom. But on the other hand, so that we'll be able to have a right perspective. And in the midst of suffering, uh, discontentment, um, loneliness, uh, you know, instability, that Jesus will be able to be that rock for us and give us that right perspective that this isn't heaven, that we get to look ahead in eternity and look up and say, one day we'll be in true heaven, but this isn't that. So if you all would make that commitment with us this week um, to let Jesus take control and, and give us that stability and that equilibrium. 
Uh, and let's pray together and we'll wrap up our message.